0: Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the 2006 Everest climbing season. This was a hugely deadly season on the mountain, and it included the death of David Sharp, a climber who many think was ignored and not saved when he could have been, and the surprising rescue of Lincoln Hall, who spent a night in the death zone and lived to tell the tale starting with a couple of apologies. First of all, it's been ages. It's just been really busy, but I'm back. So that's, that's good. And second, I am recording this in the lounge and the cat is uh, playing with her electronic ball. So if there's a lot of banging in the background, that is what that is. But yeah, hopefully not too annoying for you. And then just a reminder, follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm at when it goes wrong pod. And I would love to hear from you. I've just been connecting with loads of you over the last few weeks and it's been really nice. It's definitely encouraged me to get get back recording. So yeah, do join me over there. All right, let's get back into Everest. It's been ages since we've been at Everest and my Everest episode was actually my two parter from last year was my most, is my most popular episodes. Uh, so you might have found the podcast through, through that and then uh, now listening to some others. So it's, it's nice to go back and, and talk about it again. Cause yeah, it's been a while, been a while since we're in the mountains. But we are going to talk about 2006 and a couple of quite, I mean, with the first one, a very sad tale. But yes, so let's discuss it. So, David Sharp was a UK engineer and he was changing to train as a teacher. And he enjoyed climbing as a hobby, and he was pretty successful. So he was a a pretty skilled climber, and he'd climbed a lot of uh, very tall peaks in Europe, and he had successfully climbed one of the other 8,000 meters in the Himalayas. And as we've talked about on some of our other podcasts, it's very... Like, Everest sometimes is seen as like one of the easier 8,000 meter mountains compared to some of the others just because of how technical a climber is so the fact that he's done one of the other peaks means that he's clearly a very a skilled climber and sharp had attempted to climb everest in two previous seasons so in 2003 and 2004 but he had unfortunately not got to the summit on either occasion and that was mainly just due to the weather conditions and due to just unfortunate timing and luck and he he got frostbite uh, which meant that he lost i think he lost a few of his toes if i'm remembering that correctly but yeah he so yeah not not due to his climbing skill but just due to the yeah unfortunate timing he hadn't made it And in both of those trips, he had climbed with others. So he climbed in in groups with other people, but he regularly kind of said to others that he mainly enjoyed climbing alone. So he, he preferred independent climbing and he was not a fan of supplementary oxygen. And we talked a lot about supplementary oxygen in one of the other climbing episodes. So have a listen to that. But yeah, he—he, he, I think in pretty much all of the ones that we talked about, we have been with groups of climbers, expeditions, that type of thing. Whereas clearly in this one, he is a fan of solitary climbing, which I think makes sense because it's clearly a very reflective and meditative type of activity. But one that... Can potentially lead to <laughs> lead to more danger, right? So yes, I, I get I get that it makes sense to go alone, but it's one of those ones where you're like, is that is that the safest? So, come 2006, Sharp decided to give Everest one more shot, and he said that this was his last time he was going to do it. He after this, he was going to start his teaching placement. It would be a lot harder to take off, you know, months and months in order to go and 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 do the climbing season, and so he wanted to to hit the summit last expedition and yeah just just get 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 there basically so he joined a solo expedition as part of this so what that meant it's it's different to the other ones but basically you pay a a lot less money to a expedition company and basically they sort some bits and bobs for the for the for the climb and for the journey but they but most of it is left up to you and you're you're pretty much a free free agent once you're on the mountain so the expedition will provide things like you know the permits they would do food oxygen and support up to the advanced base camp but no further support of the the rest of the mountain so they would not do any of the higher camps there wasn't any sherpas who were helping to kind of ferry their their belongings up and they weren't providing the the climbing support and the climbing program that that we've talked about in the others you know where where you're climbing with a group of people you've got guides you've got um sherpas who are supporting you and therefore you know you're all working together this was very much the the bare bones of yep we'll get you there we'll give you a a, you know an advanced base camp but after that you're free to climb up and down the mountain as much as you would like and you need to sort out your own equipment that type of thing it's also different in this story that we are for the first time talking about the other side of mount everest so when we did the last episode we were talking about the nepal side but this time we're talking about the tibet side which is the north face and this is different Uh, they're obviously obviously different um but it's very different in terms of the layout and how the mountain is climbed Generally, the Tibet side is less popular than the Nepal side, which might just be because of, I mean, there's obviously limits and that type of thing. The climb itself is very different from a technical perspective and it's less, I don't know, I don't want to say less commercial, but... Maybe maybe that is the right way to say that it's, it's a bit less commercial on the Tibet side. There's less chance of rescue. So on the Nepal side, you can get helicopter rescue up to quite high up and on the mountain, but they basically don't do any helicopter rescue from the other side. So it's definitely a more dangerous side. But yeah, so it's, it's just different and so it has a different layout and a different set of base a different set of camps compared to the other two so there is like the initial base camp which you get to when you drive so you can drive on this side to, to the bottom which is different to the Nepal side where you have to kind of hike for, for days and days just to get to the base camp then there's a couple more camps and then there's advanced base camp and this is quite high up Um, but that is where there is um a, a larger larger settlement of, of tents and people and then you Usually after that, there's there's sometimes two more camps up the mountain, sometimes three up to from where you make the summit bid. And the summit push, again, is different. So from the summit push, the climbers face three, they call them three steps. So basically three areas of climbing that are a little bit tricky in that summit bid that they have to make it through. So the first step has lots of large boulders which are quite tricky to climb mainly because of the altitude that you're at when climbing them and a lot of people have died around that step The second step is 40 meters in length in terms of climbing but the last five meters are basically almost vertical and this was a really dangerous step but it now has like a permanent ladder attached to it which is very helpful i thought um and so that can be that can be used to ascend in that area which is definitely needed because you're so high up and then the third step is the smallest about 10 meters and then it leads onto up, up to the summit so yeah it seems as though there's a bit more intense climbing at this higher level in order to to make the summit compared to the other route So in 2006, the mountain was already quite busy and before Sharp, there had already been quite a few tragedies with quite a few deaths, including a Sherpa who had HAPE, one of the high altitude uh, pulmonary embolism that we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, There was a team who were were trying to ski down the mountain uh, who unfortunately died and there were quite a few other incidents, which has meant that quite a few people had already already died on the mountain before Sharp even took his summit bid. On the Tibet side, there was one large operator who also, it's, yeah, I guess that's why the other side is quite commercial because it has many operators, whereas on this side, they basically had one big operator, which was called Himex, H-I-M-E-X, who, would, who is basically doing loads of the it, responsible for loads of people that are on the mountain, but also they do all like the ropes and everything on that side. So they, himex, were also going to be summiting on the same day as Sharp. So they're an important player as well. dive into what happened with Sharp. I just want to talk a little bit about Green Boots. And I don't know if we've mentioned Green Boots before, but the cave and the location of Green Boots is mentioned many times. And Green Boots was basically the name of a man who had died in a cave very near the first step. And the body was basically never moved. And so, and but a lot of he- the body kind of got covered by snow and stuff, and it just had his green boots that were showing. So it became a bit of like a, like a landmark, I guess, in terms of when people were climbing, they would kind of stop in the Green Boots Cave and have it was a popular place to to go and rest on the way up. And it had just been there for ages, but no one really knew who it was in terms of of what it was. So they would t- it was just known as Green Boots. And so there was a bit of debate as to who the body was, but it's now been pretty much confirmed that it was the body of Zi Wang Jaw. And we didn't cover this in the 1996 Everest episode, but because it was, that was already so long and already covered so much, but he died in that 1996 season on that side of the mountain. So in 1996, on the North Face so the, the Tibet side that we're talking about, there was a group of Indian climbers who were trying to do the first Indian ascent on that north side of Everest. And in that season, a group of four were selected to make the summit. But it kind of seemed to go wrong from the beginning. So they planned to leave at 3 a.m., but they all overslept, which, not ideal. Yeah, they so they overslept and set off at 8 So the fact that they had just fully upset and that they decided, no, we're not going to try and do the summit, that makes no sense. As we have learned, it's all about timing and all about being able to get up in time to turn around and and make a safe descent. So they decided not to do the summit, but they thought that they would still go out and they would do uh, some more fixed ropes that day to kind of prepare them for a potential summit the next day. But as they went out, three of the four of them made really good progress and they felt really good. They got to 2:30 pm, which was their turnaround time, so they basically said they climbed till 2:30, then turn around and make their way back down. But at 2:30, the three basically radio radioed down to say, Look, we're really close to the summit. We really want to uh, continue on. They thought they were only about an hour away from the summit, and they were like, "Oh, how can we how can we turn around now? we've got to we've got to go and make this summit bid. they the team leads were like, "No, no, no, turn around. It's not worth it as as we know. Joys of summit fever. they were like, "No, nope, really want to go, really want to go." And so they yeah they tried to make it and the three called in a bit later saying they would made the summit, all very exciting but then they just didn't hear from them again whether they made the full summit is debated they might have there's some debate as to whether they made it to the top basically some people think that they thought they were at the top but weren't but because of weather and high altitude and all that kind of stuff they actually hadn't made it that far but anyway, they weren't heard from again. And a couple of hours later, that blizzard that really impacted the other side of the mountain hit, uh, and all contact with, was lost. The Indian leaders were climbing uh, at the at the the camp that they were in. There were also a Japanese expedition that was due to climb the next day, and they begged the Indian leaders begged the Japanese expedition to uh, climb and try and find them as they went. As the Japanese climbers went, they did pass two of the Indian climbers and helped them to the fixed ropes, but didn't give further aid. And this then led to like a load of controversy, as we'll talk about today, um, even further, as to whether they had done enough, whether they had ignored the kind of stricken climbers, and how what happened. But it's clear from a kind of statement that the Japanese made that actually. A lot had been lost in translation, and that the, the climbers they found didn't seem to be in distress, didn't seem to be dying. Uh, they seemed to be okay, so they just kind of helped them a little bit, and then and then went on their way. But yeah, basically, it became clear that the group had all died on the mountain, and their bodies were not recovered, as no bodies at that at that height really are are recovered. And so, yes, it's assumed that that therefore the. Climber who was in the cave, uh, was Peldor from that expedition. So that was just important for, for later context and also another another sad story that we didn't get to cover in the Everest episode. So come mid-May, Sharp decides to summit late and alone. So he he's on this independent excursion and he obviously like kind of makes friends with other people that are on the independent excursion, but he climbs very much by himself. He doesn't necessarily communicate with others what his plans are. And he sets off without a radio and with only two bottles of supplementary oxygen because he didn't really want to use it as he went. So the first reports we have of him on the summit bid were people seeing him very late on his ascent. So we have people that were doing their descent, so they'd hit the summit and were starting to coming down uh, when they saw him continuing to climb alone and up. And they reported that he was moving very slowly that he was kind of slowly making his way up but obviously it's not up to the other climbers to to question him and and question his motives he might have only just been climbing a little bit further and then was going to turn around you don't know so they just kind of said they saw him going up he was fine at the time but yes moving pretty slowly we don't really know what happened from then on so he either made it to the summit Or he turned around near the top and started making his way down. But clearly what happened is at some point he turned and he made it down to the first step where he took shelter uh, in the Green Boots cave. So he went into the Green Boots cave and took shelter there kind of off the main path. And of, of course, he, like I said, people didn't know he was doing the summit bid. He didn't have a radio, so he wasn't radioing in for help, anything like that. So he didn't inform. So basically no one knew that he was he was stuck and, and, and was in need of aid. And. It, it makes sense as well because obviously the the little expedition leaders that they had in, in that solo, solo group were in Advanced Base Camp. But once a climber had left Advanced Base Camp, they didn't keep tabs on where they were. So they weren't worried that he hadn't returned or anything like that. It, w- it was pretty normal. Here is where the controversy starts then. So several climbers passed Sharp whilst he was in the cave and this was mainly in the dark and i could kind of get it because basically a few of them thought that he was someone resting a few thought that he was potentially already dead because it was dark he wasn't moving uh, and a few mistook him for green boots so a few thought oh that's the body that's already in this cave uh, i don't need to do anything to 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 give aid but that said A lot of climbers did stop and help and see what the situation was. So especially once the light came, there was, you could really see what was happening. So he was basically sitting in this cave, totally frozen, and he had lost his gloves and he had like really frostbitten hands and basically his limbs were just like frozen in place. So he was just stuck in this, in this like position and he just couldn't move. So, a Turkish team that were climbing tried to help, so they tried to give him something warm to drink, gave him extra oxygen, tried to get him moving, but it was just clear that nothing was was gonna happen was gonna help, and he just wasn't wasn't able to to move and The thing is is that they were so high on the mountain as as we'd said before, once you get above into the death zone kind of above that eight thousand meter. It's it's really hard to give aid because it's hard to keep you alive, never mind someone else alive. So, yeah, they started giving some help, but were then forced to to, to descend. And they radioed others that he was in need of aid. Tried to get others to come and help, but uh, people say with this story that 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 he that he didn't get any help. But clearly. This group that came across him were all very upset that they couldn't do more to help him, that they couldn't do more to to get him off the mountain. So one of the following this following the Turkish team trying to help him he was just in a in a horrible state you know he was just totally stricken by hypothermia um like i said totally frozen in in many areas but he was just kind of uncontrollably shivering there's there's varying reports some people say that he was you know able to say his name and and the the expedition that he was with but he clearly wasn't very communicative and was very, you know, was in a really, really deadly state and was very close to death when when most people were interacting with him and trying to help him. And one of the high-profile Himex groups also summited and went past him, and this was where some of the criticism came. So there was a really high-profile climber that year, a man called Mark Inglis, who was a double amputee and was attempting to climb the mountain and he got lots of criticism because he was kind of seen as this high profile climber that didn't help but when when he saw sharp on his way up to the summit it was it was kind of assumed that he had been there for some time other people had tried to help him but it was it was just a lost lost cause basically because that that is what happened up there you some people you you can't help and and we know that from all the other stories we talked about you you can't always get people down at that stage if they're, if they're too far gone, basically. But then on their descent, that group did spend lots of time trying to help. Uh, sharp and try and get him moving so especially two um, of the Sherpas really spent loads of time uh, trying to get him to move they actually managed to pull him kind of out of the cave and and more into the sunshine in the hope that they would be able to get the sun and the warmth could help 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 getting him move but he just wasn't able to to move under his own steam and once you're at that level of altitude if If someone can't move over, you know, on their own steam, it's just really hard to do anything with them. And that was proven by the fact that the two Sherpas who were like two super strong, very like impressive Sherpas, it took them half an hour just to move him four steps out of that cave and into the sunshine. So I think sometimes when people think like, oh, why didn't they just like climb? carry him down from those altitudes is just not possible because think you know they are already heavy right combined with all the equipment that they're carrying combined with the fact that often they're frozen carrying someone down just isn't feasible it's hard enough to just climb down yourself (laughs) like they're in such an impaired state when they're at that level of altitude that i totally understand at that point if if it clearly was that everything was lost then they knew that they they couldn't uh couldn't try and get him down soon after this final kind of rescue attempt uh sharp then definitely did die very shortly afterwards uh on the mountain uh and his yes his body is still up there so like i said there was huge amounts of controversy after this because it was kind of seemed like, could others have done more? It was something like 40 climbers or something went past him on that day. And clearly quite a few of them did try and give aid and give help, but decided that it wasn't something that they were able to do. They weren't able to give, you know, give him more aid, Like they basically knew it was a lost cause. They knew they couldn't, couldn't get it any further. And, if they had so like say the first climbers that saw him if they had realized he was in such a a a dire situation could they have could he have survived if they had kind of raised a, a rescue mission then and I think it's very hard to to say and I think if he had been in a organized expedition then that probably would have been the case because they would have known literally and well i mean first of all they would have turned him around much earlier you would have thought but they would have known that he was in in grave danger and if he had taken a radio if he had managed to kind of talk to people much sooner then i think that there would have been a much higher likelihood that he would have been rescued but equally I think that he knew those risks right he knew the risks of climbing independently and it's the risk reward clearly climbing independently was was important enough to him that he knew those risks and and wanted to climb in that in that way and and it has been reported that he yeah like I said he knew the risks and he wouldn't have wanted to hurt others to save him so yeah it's really sad and it's it's one of those ones where it's really you could argue it either way for a long time. But Edmund Hillary, uh, the obviously very famous climber who uh, first summited Everest, uh, criticised all of those on the mountain and for those who passed him and continued to summit after they realised that they couldn't save him. But yeah, like I say, if it was really truly frozen, there's probably not a huge amount that they could do. And there was a quote in one of the Uh, resources I'll link below about what his mother thought so it said Sharp's mother Linda did not blame Bryce Chaya or anyone else for her son's death she thanked them for what they did do your your only responsibility she said is to save yourself not to try to save anyone else and I think that that is, is what we said is that it's similar to the deep sea diving as well like when you're in those situations it is a case of life and death and your life and death and and people know when you're going up into that death zone I mean it's called the death zone right that it's probably somewhere that you might not come back from so following this, Sharp was placed with his backpack over his face in the same cave and, and remained there with green boots. But a few years later, his body was pushed and moved out of sight. It's really impossible to get bodies off the mountain at that level. It They're just so heavy. By the time that they have been out there and kind of frozen, they can be hundreds and hundreds of pounds and, and, and trying to move anything at that weight and that altitude is just impossible and i think i was reading about how there was like a like a really big team that was sent to try and recover some of these bodies that were kind of at eight thousand meters like you know a team of like 12 really really strong climbers and they were like yeah we're gonna go and get these bodies down and they couldn't they had to just totally give up there was they couldn't even um they i think they moved to like 100 meters and they were like nope isn't getting any further so what what's normally traditional is just to kind of push them off the the main path so that they are interred in a in a slightly more private and and nicer space which i think makes sense because i think if you're climbing you probably don't want to see a lot of bodies as you as you climb past them right that doesn't seem ideal there is a good i'll talk about it well maybe i won't talk about it but in the resources i have a link to a a really interesting bbc article from i think it was 2015 which was talking about the kind of problem with everest bodies um and what to do about them so i definitely recommend giving that a read So in contrast to this story then, we have the story of Lincoln Hall, who was also climbing on the mountain that year. So Lincoln Hall was an Australian climber. He was born in Canberra which I've spent many, many a trip to. And he climbed many of the peaks across Australia and New Zealand to really learn his skills. And he found just an amazing love of climbing and soon started climbing all over the world. And he was the first Australian to climb many peaks for the first time. And he was the first Australian to summit Everest, which he did in 1984. So in 2006, Hall was 50 and he joined others from Australia who were climbing the peak for their first time uh, to, to climb it for his second time. And that was very exciting for him. He hadn't had as much time to train as he would have wanted, but he was excited to go back, excited to try and make the summit. So come the 25th of May, only a couple of weeks after the tragedy of, of of Sharp that we just talked about, Hall and his team prepared to climb and make their summit bid. And everything seemed to be going quite well for them. The weather was pretty good. The group were feeling strong. Yeah, things seemed to be falling into place for them. And they all climbed and they all happily summited Everest in, in pretty good time. Uh, and everything seemed to be going well. But On the way down, as we know, lots of issues always seem to happen on the descent, but on the way down, it started going wrong. So at about 8,700 meters, Hall started to suffer from really serious altitude sickness and cerebral edema, which is where the brain starts to swell, uh, basically just due to, to the prolonged time with low oxygen. And what that means is that he just becomes really disorientated, really, like, he started to hallucinate, he just found it very hard to climb, he couldn't kind of coordinate his his body and, and just, yeah, couldn't, couldn't continue on, basically. And like I said, he had been climbing as part of one of the really big expeditions, which meant that he was with a lot of other climbers, a lot of Sherpas, and they kind of rallied together to try and encourage him to keep climbing, to get down, to get down. But the day, as the day continued, it just got worse and worse for Hall, and he was just unable to move, climb, and then soon unable to move. And the Sherpas kept trying, but it, night was was upon them, and as we know, night on the mountain is not a safe place. Uh, and they were already had done hours and hours of climbing; their oxygen was really low. Hall was basically dead in their opinion because he just was was in such a state and couldn't move couldn't do anything and so they contacted their kind of headquarters at advanced base camp who encouraged them to leave and to to make their way down and to leave hall on the mountain and they knew he was on the age of death and they knew that he would probably die very soon after they left him So Abam's base camp assumed uh, that Hall had died and they actually contacted his wife and informed her that he had indeed died on Everest, which, yeah, very, very sad. But early the next morning, another group of climbers set off for their climb to the summit. Uh, And as they were climbing, (laughs) they suddenly came across Hall. Um, And there's a really good quote on the... There's there's a, a quote that I'll link on like the Summit website, which talks about this and then it's been copied into Wikipedia, but it, I thought it kind of summed it up very well. So sitting to our left, about two feet from a 10,000 foot drop, was a man, not dead, not sleeping, but sitting cross-legged in the process of changing his shirt. He, has a, he had his down suit unzipped to the waist, his arms out of his sleeves, wearing no hat, no gloves, no sunglasses, had no oxygen mask, regulator, ice axe, oxygen, no sleeping bag, no mattress, no food, no water bottle. I imagine you're surprised to see me here, he said. Now, this was a moment of total disbelief to us all. Here was a gentleman, apparently lucid, who had spent the night without oxygen at 8,600 metres, without proper equipment, and barely clothed and alive. (laughs) And I just think that that is so, yeah, so amazing. A sight that they had had come across, Um, which clearly he had managed to... I don't know, he just clearly had rallied and was still alive. And so even though on first first view they were like, oh, he's really lucid, um, he wasn't really with it. Uh, he had very bad frostbite on his hands, feet and face and he was kind of hallucinating. He thought they were on a boat, um, which obviously not ideal, uh, but the rescuers could see that he was capable enough that they were, were going to be able to save him that if they if they did some some work with him they should be able to get him moving and get him down the mountain so they ran into action uh, they re-clothed him <laughs> made him because i think that's the thing with hypothermia isn't it sometimes you feel really hot and you take all your clothes off even though you're very cold Gave him hot food, drink. Gave him back. Gave him oxygen to to bring him around further. And they radioed down to to Hall's expedition to be like, "Hey, he's still alive and is very capable of of being saved." Uh, and so that expedition immediately sent up twelve Sherpas who would then help bring Hall down. The 12 Sherpas made it up, uh, encouraged Hall back on his feet and they slowly made their way down and he managed to make it all the, you know, basically all the way down to advanced base camp, uh, which is, you know, a huge undertaking. So clearly he was, he was very capable of, of, of moving and he made it all the way down to a band space camp where he rang his wife, which I think is so. I mean, what a roller coaster that must have been to be his wife, to be told that he died on Everest, to then the next day he ringing you to be like, oh, actually, I, I wasn't dead. They just left me and I uh, apparently am fine um, and got, got the medical care that he needed. So, how I mean, how he managed to survive that night on the mountain was really the question. I think that the weather wasn't as bad as in some of our our tales, where someone gets stuck on the on the mountain and they just immediately get a freeze to death, basically. Um, so, I think the weather was all right, but he basically put it down to his Buddhist beliefs and how he he kind of. Meditated and turned into it, turned inwards to believe how he could hold on to his life uh, whilst waiting for the next day. He just knew that he had to get to the next day to the sun coming up uh, in order to to be saved, which, yeah, I think is pretty, pretty astounding, really. Sorry, cats, cats meowing. I want some attention, but busy recording. Um, And so I just think that that is so amazing that that happened. I think it's probably. As with all of these things, a combination of luck, right? Because it was bad luck that he got the um, cerebral edema. Um, Bad luck that he got the cerebral edema, but then clearly very good luck that he was able to recover and and hold on to life and, and get out. But very sadly, Hall then actually died six years later of mesothelioma, which is the uh, cancer that people got from being exposed to asbestos, um, which he had been exposed to whilst doing building work as as a younger person. And so I think that that is so sad. Maybe that's another episode we can do on uh, asbestos, which I think is just one of the most tragic stories that I've I've read, really, because it was just so, well, not necessarily preventable. People didn't know, but... Just so tragic that that you could be exposed when you were so young, and then it came to impact you so many years later. Anyway, very different to to Everest, but I just wanted to to point that out because I do think that that was, you know, he managed to survive a night in the death zone at eight thousand meters, and but the asbestos that he breathed in thirty years earlier was actually what what killed him six years later. So yeah, overall, it was a hugely deadly year. Uh, there were ten people that died across the season and it was the second most deadly season since 1996 which is the one that we covered in the earlier episode. So then in terms of of what we learned I really learned a lot in this episode about the differences between a, a kind of a supported climb and an unsupported climb, and I think it makes sense for very experienced climbers. If they want to climb independently, they can. But I do think that taking precautions, like a radio, like informing people of where you're going and when you're trying to make the summit and what time you'll get back uh, from from that summit. So if you're not back by that time, uh, then someone should really send someone and do something about it. Which clearly uh, was not done in this case. We also learnt a lot of, uh, again, about summit fever and supporting others on the mountain. I think that was really where the controversy came. I think... In Sharp's case, I do think he probably had a bit of summit fever, which is why he was still going up when others were coming down, and potentially why he then got into that situation because it was his last time that he wanted to try and climb Everest. It was his last, you know, repeatedly said this was his last attempt. He wasn't going to do it again, and I think that that makes people take take more risks because if you think that's your one and only shot, of course you're going to continue on and try and try and make it up there. So it's just again that that trying to. Be aware of summit fever and trying to make sure that, that we oppose it or do something about it as much as we can, because otherwise it's just going to be the thing that, that is the difference between life and death. You have to be able to turn around. And again, <clears throat> this comes back to the supported versus unsupported climb, because... When you are in a more supported climb, you have people that are at lower levels who are not, you know, kind of impacted by the altitude who can make those calls for you and can say, no, it's time to turn around, it's time to turn around and and have that much more level head than potentially those that are climbing by themselves that that just will continue on and on and on no matter what they they potentially think that they are going to get and then again this this kind of like supporting others on the mountain and again and hillary was quoted as saying like there's nothing more important than saving others uh, you should always give up a summit bid in order to 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 save others but i do think it's a case of 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 understanding the the level of risk and also the level of potential success because if if they were able to To say, you know, I think if if someone knows that they're able to save someone, then I think they they will do everything in their power in order to do that. But I do think at some point you just have to say there's nothing else we can do. It's much more dangerous for us to continue helping rather than, yeah, just just carrying on, going up and down as as we had planned. So I think it's, yeah, we talked about it on the previous episode, but it's very much understanding the situation that they're in and how different that situation is to to being on normal altitude because <laughs> it's just a, a different world up there. Right. So, yeah, let's talk about some references then. So there's a very good book which covers both of these uh, stories and also covers kind of like a history of Everest, that type of thing, which is called Dark Summit uh, by Nick Heil um so i really recommend that i really enjoyed reading it it was very a really interesting read and covered a huge amount of detail about the about these two two stories and actually uh, there's not a huge amount online about them there there are some which i will link in the in the resources but the book really had so much more content and so much more detail about what happened so i really recommend giving that a read if you're interested in this um, or or interested in kind of reading anything related to climbing if you read the um everest books that i recommended last time like the into Thin air etc then yeah this is a nice a nice one to add add into your your list of to be read there is also a documentary which i recommend which was called dying for everest i can't remember where i watched it Maybe on Prime, which, yeah, which covered this in, in lots of detail and is worth a watch. Like I said, I will link the BBC articles, which I thought were very good. The one about um, Everest, 200 dead bodies. And they also did a really good other good, really good long read on Green Boots and understanding who Green Boots was and kind of talking to his family and all this type of stuff. So I'll, I'll link both of those. They're really worth a read. And yes, so thank you very much for listening. Like I said, please do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod or send me an email. Love getting emails uh, because it's nice to nice to hear from you. And if you're not an Instagram person, then yes, please do email me. I reply to everyone. Um uh, my email is when it goes Wrong pod at gmail.com. Um, I would love any episode suggestions, any feedback, hopefully nice feedback. <laughs> please do send me a note. And yes, if you uh, would also like to do all the other good podcast things, so uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of thing. That would be great.